that we would be inspired, or that we would be transformed. 
pray that because of what you do in this room, through your word, by your spirit, that our lives will never be the same. And we ask you for all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Joshua can be outlined under four different headings. The first part of the book is found in chapters 1 through 5, and you can call that section of the book, Cross Over Into the Land. That's when God commands His people, Israel, led by Joshua, to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. You see that transpire in that first section. The second section can be titled, Take the Land. Chapter 6 through 12, the Lord gives Joshua and the army of Israel the strength and the skill to conquer the peoples living in that land. And then the third section could be titled, Divide Up the Land, found in chapters 13 through 21. That's where we find ourselves this morning, where the Lord uh, begins to uh, divide up the land among the different tribes of Israel. And then the final part of the book is found in chapters 22 through 24. You could call that section, Serve the Lord in the Land, or Thrive in the Land, Live for Him in the Land that he has given you. And so that's the, the outline of the book of Joshua. And again, this morning we are looking at the land being divided up and allotted to the different tribes. Now, last week we looked at the allotment for the tribe of Judah, and we learned a lot from that section of Scripture. Now we're going to see the curious case of Ephraim and Manasseh, these two tribes, and how land is allotted to them and what they do with what God has given them. Now, you may remember uh, Manasseh uh, as uh, his name was mentioned earlier in Joshua because half of the tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan with the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now, the remainder of the tribe is being given land along with Ephraim. And as we see the, this passage unfold in chapter 16 and 17, we see some curious developments. I want to just walk you through this section and point out these three curious developments. First of all, we see a curious elevation. A curious elevation. Now, notice there in verse 4, it says, the people of Joseph. That means that Manasseh and Ephraim, these tribes, come from uh, the, uh, the the ancestors of Joseph. Joseph had two sons who were blessed by his father, Jacob, and these two sons were named Ephraim and Manasseh. So these are the two tribes. Now, it's interesting to note that Joseph's name is not listed among the 12 tribes that are given land. His sons are listed. That's because over in Genesis chapter 48, uh, Jacob says, your sons are going to have the same place, my, the same place, be on the same level as my sons. And so they take their place among the sons of Jacob. They're elevated to that status. And the Levites aren't given any land. We talked about that already. So one son gets uh, their place, and then instead of Joseph being mentioned, the other son is mentioned. So you still have 12 tribes being given land here in this book. Uh, but there's something interesting about verse 4 because it says the people of Joseph come from Manasseh, that's the firstborn son of Joseph, and Ephraim. They received their inheritance. But then in verse 5 it says the territory of the people of Ephraim. And so they're mentioned in their birth order in verse 4, but in order of getting their land, Ephraim's name comes first. Ephraim comes 
choose to form Manasseh. Now, if I were allotting inheritance kids, I would start with my oldest, Cameron, and then go to Caleb, and then Abby Faith, and then Connor. That's, that's the way it works when you give inheritance to your kids. But it's interesting here that the younger is mentioned ahead of the older. Why is that? Well, it goes back to that blessing that Jacob or Israel prayed over Joseph's sons. Look back with me in Genesis 48. I want you to see this. Genesis 48, fascinating passage of Scripture. with me in verse 8. When Israel, or Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. So if you were going to bless the firstborn, you would do that with the, the hand that cares with it more important. It's the right hand in this day and time. And so he put Manasseh, the firstborn, close to Jacob's right hand. He puts the second born Ephraim right there by Jacob's left hand, so he could do the firstborn blessing over Manasseh and then bless Ephraim as well. But look what happens in the next verse. It says, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was on his left side. He was the younger. And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blesses, verse 15, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now look in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, the youngest, it displeased him. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So what happens here? To kind of sum up the passage, Jacob gave Ephraim the firstborn blessing. He his right hand crossed over and put it on Ephraim's head, left hand on Manasseh's head. And so Ephraim gets the firstborn blessing, even though he was the younger of the two. And we see that this, this elevation of Ephraim over Manasseh takes shape as the story of Israel unfolds. Ephraim became a leading tribe among the Israelites. As a matter of fact, the successor of Moses, Joshua, guess what? He's an Ephraimite. And so they took a leading role, and in that sense, he was elevated above the tribe of Manasseh. And, and Joseph doesn't understand this. Wait, wait a minute, Dad, you're getting old. Manasseh's the oldest. Put your right hand on him. And, and Joseph says, No. Ephraim will be elevated over Manasseh. Now, here comes the big question 
him, the youngest, elevated over Manasseh, getting the blessing of the firstborn? Here's the answer. We don't know why. That's just the way God did it. That's just the way God did it. And we don't know his ultimate purposes in that and, and why he did that, but we see this elevation of Ephraim reflected in the allotment of the land. Verse 4 of Joshua 16, they're mentioned in the birth order, but in verse 5, Ephraim, the youngest, gets his land first. What in the world does this teach you and me? Here's what it teaches us. We are reminded by this that God assigns our station in life. Acts chapter 17 is very clear. Paul speaking on the Areopagus in Athens, and Paul says that God is the one who assigns us our boundaries and habitations in this life. Our station in life, our lot in life, if you will, comes from the hands of a sovereign God. That's the case with Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the way God wanted it to be. So that's the way that it was. And your station in life is your station in life because God has determined it be your station in life. So what does that mean? It means that we are up what He assigns. We can find ourselves discontent and and always wanting something different, but we need to understand that we are who we are. We live where we live. Our parents are our parents because God has assigned that for us. And our job is not to wish we were somewhere else or wish we were somebody else. Our job is to say, God, you have placed me here. God, you are sovereign. God, this comes from your hands. I accept your assignment. But it goes beyond that. Because we don't want to just begrudgingly accept our assignment. We are also to thrive in our assignment. God, you have given me what you've given me. You've shaped me how you shaped me. You've placed me where you've placed me so that I can live for you, live for your glory, make much of Christ. And so I'm going to do everything I can by your grace and by your strength to live for you in my assignment. We can bemoan the fact that we're not somebody else or don't live somewhere else or don't have other skill sets. But God's the one who's in control, amen? And instead of wondering about who, who gets what blessing, we should say, God, I'm going to accept my life as coming from your hand, and by your grace, I'm going to thrive in my assignment. One of my favorite books is called Walking from East to West, God in the Shadows. It's an autobiography written by Robbie Zacharias. It's a remarkable story that really highlights the providence of God. And in that book, Robbie Zacharias tells the story of growing up in India. His family had some means, but Robbie Zacharias was a big cricket fan. He loved cricket, and his dream was to be a professional cricket player. Now, if you've ever been to India, uh, cricket's a big deal over there, a huge deal. And he wanted to be a professional cricket player. But through his teenage years, it was clear he would not be a professional cricket player. He became disillusioned. His father was unduly harsh towards him. And he came to a place of, of utter helplessness, even to the point where he drank some poison, ready to end his life. Well, I was 
did not die. He was in serious condition. And a Christian came to the hospital to visit him. He heard about his condition. He handed his mother, Robbie Zacharias' mother, a Bible. And he said, would you read to him John chapter 14? So this mother began to read these scriptures of hope and peace in Christ, life in Christ to Robbie Zacharias. And there, this disillusioned, broken young man discovered his purpose in following Jesus. And he gave his heart fully to Christ. And now he's one of the leading Christian evangelists, apologists in our world today. Mightily used by God. It's easy to get disillusioned with your life and say, this is not what I want. This is not where I want to be. This is not who I want to be. But maybe God has a purpose in that station He has assigned you. And if you will discover that purpose and grab hold of Jesus and say, Jesus, in the midst of the life you've given me, I will follow you wherever you lead. You'll do that. You will experience meaning and joy and fulfillment and excitement and adventure like you can't even imagine. Don't spend your time worrying about things that you wish would happen that never happened. Understand God is on His throne. And say, God, right here in this life that you've given me, use me. That's a lesson we can learn from the curious elevation of Ephraim over Manasseh. Don't let your life be disillusioned and disappointed. Understand that like Robbie Zacharias, God has a plan and a purpose for you, and He will use you mightily. Listen, if you'll just place your life in His hands and say, it's yours, it's yours. So there's this curious elevation, but secondly, there's a curious reluctance. A curious reluctance found in this passage. Look back with me in Joshua chapter 16, as land is given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Look how they respond to what God gave them. Joshua 16, verse 10. The Bible says, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So God gave the Ephraimites land and said, I want you to, to drive out the Canaanites living there. Now, back in the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Lord says over and over again, if you don't drive the people out, they'll become a snare to you. If you let them just live among you, they will, they will influence you with their idol worship, and before you know it, you will start worshiping their false gods. Ephraim ignores that aspect of God's command. And they go into the land, they do not drive the people fully out. And then look at Manasseh in chapter 17, verse 12. So the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they took the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. What happens here with Ephraim and Manasseh? Ephraim and Manasseh both stop short of full obedience. They do not wholly follow the Lord. They do not fully obey God. 
They don't drive the Canaanites out. And they stop short of full obedience. I like what the Old Testament scholar David Howard writes. They had the power to remove the Canaanites from the land and so to be God's instruments of judgment to remove wickedness. But they chose to tolerate wickedness and to use for their own purposes that which God had devoted to destruction. And so they sowed the seeds of their own destruction just like Achan. Peace with wickedness is preferred by them to war for righteousness. So they cozy up to the Canaanites and let them live among them and the consequences will be devastating. Now remember, Joshua was an Ephraimite. This is his family. Can you imagine his frustration? My tribe is not fully obeying the Lord. My tribe is, is stopping short of full obedience. You can imagine how frustrating that was to Joshua. But here's what we see develop as we more men to the, the end of pages of their reluctance wholly follow the Lord became a disturbing pattern. A disturbing pattern. It's return to first Kings chapter twelve. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. There's Ephraim mentioned. And he lived there. He went out from there and built Peniel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. And the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. And the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. This is after the kingdom divides, after the death of Solomon. So the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. One in Ephraim, one in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. One of these false gods. So, here's what happens. Ephraim and Dan, these two tribes of Israel, lead the way in idolatry. Now here's what's interesting. The final list of the twelve tribes found in Revelation chapter 7. Ephraim and Dan are not mentioned. Joseph's name is put back in there for Ephraim, and Dan is replaced by the Levites in that final list in Revelation 7. And scholars believe that the reason that Ephraim and Dan aren't in the final list of tribes is because of their leadership and idolatry here in this passage. Their, their leadership and idolatry with a stench in God's nostrils. So, so we see him over in Joshua reluctant to take hold of the land reluctant to fully obey God, but now they're in full-blown rebellion against God. Hold your place. But turn with me over to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Let me give you just a little bit of background here. Hezekiah is leading a revival in Israel. The king. He's trying to lead the people to get right with the Lord. To put things in place that were not in place. That were biblical. So he sends out a letter. And the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles that he sends a letter to Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And the letter basically says, get right with the Lord. We're going to put Passover back in place. Would you come and worship and do what God has told us to do in His Word? Turn to Him. That's what He says to Ephraim and Manasseh. Look what happens in verse 30. Or, sorry, verse 10. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. Listen to this. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. In Joshua, they're just not fully obedient. They're reluctant to, to fully obey and drive out the Canaanites. But here in 2 Chronicles, full-blown rebellion. Messengers come, turn to God, get right with the Lord, and they laugh at them and mock them. What do we learn? We learn that reluctance to fully serve the Lord can lead to full-blown rebellion. And if, listen to me, if there is a reluctance in your life to follow the Lord Jesus with your whole heart, you are in dangerous territory. Because you'll start making compromise, 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 and before you know it, you can find yourself in full blown rebellion against God. It's a slippery slope. That's what we see in the case of Ephraim and Manasseh. So I wonder if there are some things in your life that you're reluctant to take hold of. I wonder if there's some realities, some, some blessings God has for you that you are not laying hold of because you're reluctant to fully follow the Lord. Things like unclaimed promises. In the Bible, we have many promises from God, and yet we leave those promises dangling in Scripture. We never take hold of them. For example, in John 8, verse 36, the Bible says, He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Do you believe that? believe that Jesus gives freedom? you believe that? You don't act like it. Do you believe that Jesus gives freedom? Then why are there so many living in bondage? In name the name of Christ. There are promises like this in the Bible. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here's the promise. In the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's a promise of God, right? Then why is anxiety destroying your life? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 gives us a promise. The Bible says that if we find ourselves in the throes of temptation, God is faithful in that He always provides a way of escape. Always. Is that a promise? Yes. And why are so many giving in to temptation and in bondage to sin? Luke eleven thirteen is a promise. That the Lord will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Do you believe that promise? Then why are so many Christians living pitiful? 
powerless lives. We haven't claimed that promise of God. We were reluctant to grasp hold of that which God has for us. We fall short of living passionately for His glory. What about unprayed prayers? We're talking about unclaimed promise. What about unprayed prayers? I don't understand prayer completely, but here's what I know the Bible teaches. There are things that happen in our lives and through our lives as a result of us praying to God. Which means there are things that will not happen if we do not pray. Right? And I wonder how many things you've left on the table because you haven't prayed. How many blessings and how much power God had for you that you've never taken hold of completely because you did not pray. James 4 says, you have not because you, what? Ask not. There are things that we could possess that we don't possess because we do not pray, right? Unprayed prayers are a tragedy. I was listening to a sermon by Adrian Rogers one day. He made this statement, and it just really clicked for me. It made so much sense. He said, The devil cannot stop God from answering. So he tries to stop you from asking. Unprayed prayers. We fall short of living for his glory, of making a difference. Because we will not pray. What about untapped potential? There are unclaimed promises, unprayed prayers, and sometimes we're reluctant to, to grasp hold of untapped potential. Ephesians 2.10 says this. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we walk in. That verse means that you have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, then God has a plan, a specific plan for your life. He has good works that He's prepared beforehand for you even born. Good works that He wants you to walk in. How many of you can say this morning, don't raise your hand, but how many of you can say, I know what God has for me, and I'm walking in His purposes for my life. How many of us are living in the realm of untapped potential? God has these plans for our lives, ways He wants to use us, ways that are exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we ask or think, but, but we're not living in that. We're reluctant to follow Jesus wherever He leads. Because we're reluctant, we are missing out on the plans and the purposes and the power of God in our life. Do you see a little bit of yourself in Ephraim and Manasseh? Kind of obedient, but not fully obedient. Kind of on board, but not really on board. In, but not all in. Do you see a little bit of yourself in these tribes? There's a curious reluctance in Joshua 16, 17 to fully obey God. 
But third and last, we've seen this curious elevation of Ephraim over Manasseh, and we see this curious reluctance for the tribes to obey the Lord. But third, we see a curious challenge from Joshua. Look in verse 14 of Joshua 17. And the people of Joseph, presumably representatives from Ephraim and Manasseh, spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, because all along the Lord has blessed me. Now, now, think about the hubris being displayed here. They didn't fully possess what God had already given them. Now they're already coming back and saying, We want more. Wah, wah, wah. We're big. We should, we, get, we should get more. Give us more. And I love how Joshua handles this request, this discontentment. Look what he says there in verse 15. Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and their clear ground for yourselves and land of the Perizzites and the rest of them, because the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. I love what he says. Go up by yourselves. You want more land? Go get it. You can have it. It's yours. All you got to do is fight. There's a challenge there, isn't it? You want more land? Stand up and be strong. Stop living in reluctance and be people of resolve. He's, he's challenging them to take ownership of their future. It's not up to me, Joshua said, for me to go get the land for you. It's up to you. And your obedience to the Lord. Now, the descendants of Joseph had several things going for them. First of all, they had a great heritage. Look in verse 7. Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people. They had a great heritage. They come from, uh, from Ephraim and Manasseh, these two sons of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was an important guy, right? God used him and his providence to rescue the the other sons of Jacob and Jacob's family from starvation and famine in Egypt. is a fascinating story in Genesis. Joseph played a key role in preserving the descendants of Abraham. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. There was the blessing by Jacob and all this stuff going on. They had a great heritage. He's reminding you have a great heritage. It's almost like uh, you act like you're somebody. Stop sniveling and whining and complaining and realize you come from Joseph's stock. You have a great heritage. We think about that in our own lives. We think about our heritage in the Lord. You know the Bible says? The Bible says that we are all sinners that deserve everlasting separation and destruction in that awful place called hell. That's, that's what you and I deserve. But God, in His great love wherewith He loved us, sent His only Son, Jesus, to this earth. And Jesus left the splendor and glory and unceasing worship of heaven, took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died in our place, took our sin on Himself, took the wrath of God that we deserve, died for us, He was buried, and early on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And then the Bible says, 
that those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith, listen, become joint heirs of with Christ. In other words, we are adopted by God. We are on the same standing as Jesus Christ himself in terms of being a son or daughter of the one true God. Amen? That's your heritage. You've been redeemed by the, the, by the precious blood of the Lamb. Join heir with Jesus. You are a son or a daughter of God. Listen, act like it. Act like it. Act like it. That is your heritage. Not only did they have a great heritage, they had a great power. Look in verse 17. You are numerous people and have great power. They had strength. They had wherewithal. They had skill. He said, you're a powerful tribe. You have a lot going So go and conquer the land God has for you. You have a great power. We can identify with that. Because if you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, about listen to this. At the moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit of God came to take residence in your life. You want to talk about power? Is there any greater power than God in you? And yet sometimes our lives look so so powerless, so weak, so anemic. Listen, act like it. Amen? He had a great heritage, had a great power, had a great vision. Verse 18, look what Joshua says. The hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it, possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chairs of iron, and though they are strong. What a vision. Hey, see that land over there, that hill country? It's yours if you want it. Now it's up to Ephraim and Manasseh to take advantage of that gift from God and to lay claim God had for them. Listen to me. There's no record they ever did. They left that promise and that inheritance in the possession of idol worshipers. Why? Reluctant. But not only did they have great heritage and great power and great vision, they had a great example. This is very fascinating. Look with me back in verse 3 of chapter 17. I love this. Verse 3 of chapter 17. The Bible says, Now, Zelophehad, say that five times fast, the son of Hathir, son of Gilead, son of Hathir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, Hagalah, Milcah, and Terzah. And they approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell in Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh, received an inheritance along with his sons. Now, these 
daughters of Zelophehad are mentioning a story that happens over Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. Zelophehad didn't have any sons, so the daughters come and say, Hey, listen, even though there's not a male in his lineage as his daughters, we, we think we need an inheritance. And so Moses goes and inquires of God, and the Lord says to Moses, Yes, give them an inheritance among the other people of Manasseh. So here in Joshua, and then these ladies show up and say, Hey, God told us, listen, we have an inheritance. We're ready to take our inheritance. Isn't that awesome? So these, these five daughters are showing a resolve that the men of Manasseh did not have. They were exemplifying a, a resolve, giving them an example to follow, which sadly they did not. These daughters act on the Word of God. What an example they had to pattern themselves after. Now, I don't know how to say this delicately. And what I'm about to say is not a, a statement about the point. It's just a reflection on being in ministry for 20 years now. Just, just kind of a, a general observation as I've been around a lot of folks, a lot of, a lot of churches. And here's my observation. And here, here's how I'll say it. In the average church, it's easier to find women who are on fire for the Lord than it is men. It's the only way I know how to say that. In the average church, you don't have to look forward to find women who are living a passionate life of following Jesus Christ, living lives of resolve and obedience and fervor. All I'm saying is, it's a little bit harder to find men like that. And let me follow that comment by saying this. It ought not to be like that. We need women who love Christ and are all in. And we need men who love Christ and are all in. The heroes of this passage, or the heroines of this passage, are the daughters of the Lokihan. Not the military leaders, not the tribal leaders. It's, it's the daughters. They provide the example of resolve that Manasseh and Ephraim needed to follow. So this is a curious story. There's a lot happening here. A curious elevation of younger over the older. There's this curious reluctance to fully obey God. There's this curious challenge. Joshua says, there's the land. It's yours if you want it. So what do we glean from all that? How, what do we walk away with from all of that? Here it is. It's time to replace reluctance with resolve in your Christian life. It's time to replace reluctance with resolve in your Christian life. If you find yourself hesitating, if you find yourself not fully embracing Christ, following Him wherever He leads. If, if you're not wholehearted, it's time to lay that aside. And by the grace of God, 
through the Spirit of God to say, I will follow Jesus. I will love Him. I will serve Him. To let the Holy Spirit transform your reluctance into a God-honoring result. 